You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading on this Easter morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. We'll begin our reading at chapter 23, verse 44. And we'll conclude our reading at chapter 24, verse 12. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, where the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloths, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Our text this morning comes from the middle of verse 6 of Luke 24, 
the words, he has risen. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, just how does one go about announcing to the world the greatest event in human history? After all, that is what Easter represents. There is nothing that compares with it or can compete with it. Nothing else makes such a difference in our lives. Nothing else produces its kind of fruits. Nothing else is so radical, so transforming, as well as so inspiring. So just how does one announce an event like this? I suppose that if we people were faced with that challenge today, we would probably appoint a committee to study the matter. And maybe thereafter we would call a press conference at BC Place. And no doubt it would be filled with celebrities and politicians and other notable people. Oh, and not to be forgotten are the television cameras and the radio announcers. And as well, we would certainly have a talk with Peter Mansbridge and make sure that he would cover it for the national. After all, big events call for big coverage, right? And yet, beloved, when we now turn to what is truly the most important happening in all of history, what do we see, what do we hear, what do we notice? Not much to speak of. As that most momentous morning dawns, nothing much can be heard or seen. There are no trumpets blaring. There are no crowds busy gathering. There is no festivities that we can see in the offing. All is calm and quiet. Or is it? Now, something can be heard, a wee little something, some rustling of the wee leaves, some faint whispers. There are a few women making their way through a garden, and they're carrying a lot of spices, the kind that you use for dead people. And there is also a tomb with the stone rolled away, apparently a body has gone missing. And then suddenly something unusual does happen. Two men appear, two very bright men. It's as if they have their fingers in an electrical socket somewhere. They're glowing. But they do more than glow, they also proceed to speak. And just what do they say? Well, actually, actually that too is rather odd. For if you listen to it, you can hear that they chide the women and ask them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now that is a strange thing to say to them, isn't it? These women must have thought, is this not a cemetery? Is this not a burial place? Who is looking for the living? We are looking for the dead. And next, the really bright guys utter some unusual words. They say, he is not here, he is risen. Now what kind of an announcement is that? 
No name is mentioned by them. No person is identified. All they do is talk about he. And in actual fact, as we shall soon see, they don't even mention he. And what do they simply say? He's not here. And that's obvious. The tomb is empty. Of course he's not there. And second, they say he has risen. So so what's that supposed to mean? Was he only sleeping? Was he merely taking a nap? Was he just resting? Beloved, do you begin to see just how odd this all is? Everything is kind of unusual here. Nothing is as we expect it to be more than anything else. This is not how we would expect the greatest announcement of all time to be made. And yet this is how it happens. And that means obviously that this is the way that God wants it. Our God wants it to happen. Once again, he surprises us. Once more, he confounds our expectations and defies our predictions. And indeed, he could not have done it any simpler or made the news any shorter. And so, beloved, let's stop here. Let's consider for a moment and unpack its treasures together. I preached to you on the theme, He has risen. And as we shall see, these words are spoken by angels, are spoken to women, and are spoken about Christ. Well, beloved, do you believe in angels? Do they still fit somewhere in your theology today? I ask this because while Hollywood still makes movies about angels, they seem to fit more into the realm of science fiction and make-believe than anywhere else. And the upshot of all of this is that only the superstitious, the sentimental, and the stupid still believe and angels. Why, even among God's so-called people, the jury is out. Those of liberal persuasion dismiss angels and accuse those who believe in them of spiritual immaturity and naivety. And meanwhile, those of a more conservative bent do believe in them, but that's about all. We believe in angels, yes, but we're not sure what to do with them or what to think about them. Well, beloved, if you share in such ambivalence, then it's a good thing to examine the persons and the events of this Easter morning so long ago. For who are the official announcers of this greatest of events to angels? Two really bright persons are actually special messengers. The God's unique servants. The divine spokesman. And indeed, their very presence signals that something momentous must have happened. Think, think back to what the Bible tells us about them. When do they appear? 
They always appear at crucial moments and great happenings. For example, when God made the heavens and the earth, who were the ones who were doing the singing and making the music? It were the angels. Job recounts that then the morning song sang together and the angels shouted for joy. And David opens Psalm 19 with the majestic words, the heavens declare the glory of God. And what about when men fell into sin? Who are the ones who are doing the enforcing? It were the angels. Genesis 3 tells us that God placed the cherubim on the east side of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. And who appeared repeatedly to the patriarchs, to Moses at the burning bush, to the parents of the judge Samson, it were the angels, especially one called the angel of the Lord. And what about later on in the fullness of time when the birth of Christ was announced? Who appeared to Zechariah, Mary, and to the shepherds? It was Gabriel and an innumerable host of angels. Oh, and to have been there and to have heard them sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So just who are the angels? They're God's special servants. There is great news announcers. Or if you will, there is public relations people. And hence, beloved, it should come as no surprise for us to meet them here on Easter morning. Whenever God wants to break into our world in a special way, with special news, he uses angels. He did so at the birth of Christ. He does so at the resurrection of Christ. He will do so at the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. So whenever we read about angels, what must we think? We must conclude that here God is at work. Here heaven is involved. Here God is moving his great plan of redemption forward, onward, and upward. But there is more. For not only do the angels announce God's great deeds, they also do something else. They do something for us, for you and I as the children of God. You and I, beloved, need to do more than just believe in their existence. We also need to believe in their presence and their work in our lives. Who do you think keeps you in the face? Who do you think lifts you up when you're down? Who is there for you when you are in trouble? Who protects you? Who watches over you? Of course, God does. But his angels do as well. And if you're unsure of this or in doubt, then perhaps you need to commit the words of Hebrews 1 verse 14 to memory. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? 
Beloved, angels exist. Angels go to work every day. Angels have a daily task. Angels serve you. They minister to you. They, they minister to all of God's children every day. And so, beloved, with respect to Easter, this means that they not only bring you the Easter tidings and proclaim to you a risen Christ, but they also keep those tidings alive in the hearts of God's children. The angels announce the Easter face, and the angels work to keep you in this Easter face. But then, beloved, if our text tells us about the angels at Easter, it also tells us about the women who were the first to receive the Easter message. And again, notice something strange. At first, Mark gives them no names. He knows their names, as we'll see, but he gives them no names. He simply calls them the women. And only later on in verse 10 does he give them some names. Does he mention, for example, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them. And you know, that's not all that's unusual here. There's something else that should strike us. And it would surely strike us if we were living or if we had been raised in the Middle East. And it is the fact that the angelic announcement of this great news is made to women. You need to understand that this particular time in Israelite society, women had little or no standing. They just didn't count. They were of no importance. They had no rights. Apart from their husbands, they were legal nobodies. And if they had no husbands, they belonged still, no matter what their age, in the house of their parents and under the authority of their fathers. And so you see, the upshot of all of this is that we, we do not expect that they will now be the first to receive the Easter tidings, the greatest news in all the world. We expect it to go elsewhere. Where and to whom, you ask? Well, what about Joseph of Arimathea? He was a man of importance and wealth. He was also, we are told, a believer in Luke's gospel. And, of course, he supplied the tomb. And, and so there are some very good reasons for saying that Joseph should be the first one. And if not Joseph, what about Nicodemus? The gospel writers tell us that Nicodemus accompanied Joseph. And they also tell us that Nicodemus supplied a huge amount of alloys and myrrh, 75 pounds to use to embalm the body of the Lord Jesus. And so why was the Easter announcement not made to him or to him together with Joseph? He was obviously a disciple. 
He was also a Pharisee, a man of learning and a man of importance. So, so why not to him? Why not to them? And if not to them, why was it not made to other men? Would it not have been fitting for people like Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod, the king, Pilate, the governor, to hear it? Well, of course, I know that none of them deserve to hear it. But just imagine how it would have shocked them and unnerved them. How it would have made them sweat. And how sweet the revenge. Oh, to see the expression on their faces. But nevertheless, beloved, it is not to be. None of our scenarios are deemed to be right with God. God ignores all the men. God bypasses the powerful, the rich, the movers and the shakers in Israeli society. And instead, in having the angels announce it to the women, God is opting for the little people. The no accounts. The insignificant, the marginalized. Now in saying that, we do not want to go overboard. There is a view abroad these days that God always opts for the poor and the oppressed no matter what. He is said to be automatically on the side of the underprivileged. But that, beloved, would be saying too much. That's overstating the case. Rather, what needs to be said is that God so often sides with the poor and the oppressed among his people, among his children, among his believers. Think in that regard of the words of Mary back in Luke 1. After hearing the testimony of Elizabeth, she sings about other things, about God, that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And that God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And Mary also declares that his mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. In other words, the humble, the hungry, who fear him, are rewarded by him in a special way. Yes, and that, beloved, is good for us to know and to remember. You know, if we've been raised in the church, if we've always been part of the people of God, there there is this danger that perhaps without even realizing it, we take over an attitude of sinful pride and presumption. We sometimes begin to assume that salvation is our right. Something we deserve to receive. 
And in the process, we set ourselves up as the judges of others and begin to assume that we have the right to say as to who should be or not be in the church of Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God. And in the process, we forget that salvation is all of grace, or as Mary put it, all of mercy. So what does God do on Easter? What does he do on the greatest day of his redemptive calendar? He sends us angels who bring Easter news and who seek to keep us in that news. And he reminds us through the women of our constant need for a humble Easter face. Beloved, you and I need to realize that what we receive today is pure gift. It's total favor, utter mercy. It happens to us in spite of who we are and what we deserve. It's grace. And only grace. And more grace. Oh, and as we are considering all of this, let us not neglect one more aspect of our text, and that has to do with the joyful heart of the Easter message. Where is that joyful heart to be found? Well, it is to be found in those words, He has risen. And again, you have to wonder about this. For look, this message consists of only three words in English, but do you realize that in the Greek language there's only one word? There's only the word risen. That's all. Just one word to convey the greatest news in all the world and in all of history. And the word is risen. Jesus has risen, risen from the dead. He is dead no longer. He lives. And so history's greatest news comes to you in one single solitary word. And why is that the greatest news? What's so great about that one word? Well, beloved, first of all, it means mission accomplished. You know, also his ministry, but especially towards the end of his earthly ministry, Christ spoke about the need for him to die and the fact that he would rise again on the third day. The angels even remind the women about that prediction. And that rising, you can say, beloved, is the proof, it is the indicator, it is the guarantee that his redeeming work has been successful, has been perfect. If there had been any flaws or faults in it, the Son would not have been able to raise himself and the Father would not have raised him either. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea would have remained his home and his resting place. 
The earth would have claimed him and sin and death would have had the last word. But thankfully that didn't happen. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes he arose. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. As Christ arose, beloved, and that means mission accomplished. But it also means something else. It means death. Defeated. The Apostle Paul says death is the last enemy. We would probably say it's the greatest and dreaded enemy of all. And indeed, it's an enemy that stalks us every day and that is continually with us while we are in this life. Every day, as we grow older and closer, we are growing closer to the day of our dying. And every time we step in our cars and fly off in airplanes and cross the street and breathe at breaths, we are vulnerable to it. And whenever we think of our loved ones, then we cannot ignore the fact that death has already taken some of them away. Even when Christians call funeral a celebration of life, we know deep down those words do not really describe how we feel. Well then, beloved, how good it is to know that Christ has defeated the enemy. That when he rises again, he rises as the grave breaker, as the victor, as the grave crusher. Yes, and that in turn sets the stage for one more thing. One more beautiful thing, and that is the transformation of our lives. For beloved, not only does Christ accomplish his mission and defeat death, but he also rises, Paul says, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because he lives, we shall live. Because he has arisen, we shall be raised. One day he will raise us to life. One day he will raise us to glory. One day he will raise us to a joy unspeakable and unimaginable. And perhaps it is the Apostle Peter who says it best. When he writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. In this you greatly rejoice. So now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs and all kinds of trials. Yet a little while, beloved. Yet a little while until Christ is revealed and you receive praise, glory, and honor. Thanks to what he has done 
You and I need not live in fear of death. And neither need we live in fear for our believing loved ones who have died already. They live, we live, because He lives. Christ has risen. Hallelujah. And one day, we too shall rise. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great gift of your Son. We thank you for the Easter tidings. And we acknowledge that if we were in control, we would have done it differently. But you have done it your way. Your mysterious, unfathomable, mighty way. You have done it by the angels. You've given it first to the women. But you've reminded us all that we have a Savior who is risen. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we may know that he lives today, that he's seated on your right hand, ruling over all things, Today, and we thank you also that we may know that one day he is coming again on the clouds of glory. We thank you that we may know that our salvation and our life and our future is established and confirmed in him. Father, receive our thanks. Increase our joy. Expand our expectation. And make us to realize how rich we are. And how many, many reasons we have for rejoicing. Lord, hear us. And bless us in the name of your risen Son. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.